You're listening to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Some material may be disturbing and we use adult language. Listener discretion is advised. If you love the show, be sure to hit subscribe so that you never miss new episodes. And if you want to support the show, please visit www.patreon.com slash killerqueenspod, where as little as $3 a month gets you early access to shows and amazing additional content. Now on to today's case. Hi. <sighs> Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Killer Queens. We're back with a new episode. Yeah. Oh, special thanks to Emily. She suggested this case using our handy dandy case submission form mm. on our website. Thanks, girl. We have a website. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. She sent us a lot of great uh, articles on it, all kinds of stuff. So, Emily, girl, you asked for it. And you got it. And you got it. <laughs> Here it is. Diane downs yep yuck ew here we go diane elizabeth or excuse me i already, I already <laughs> fucked it up <laughs> elizabeth diane downs just pretend like everybody's naked you'll be less nervous mm, i don't want to think of you naked <gasps> i'm sorry <gasps> it's weird you should be so lucky <laughs> all right next okay Elizabeth Diane Downs was a 27-year-old mother that moved up to Oregon from Chandler, Arizona, and she had married her high school sweetheart, Steve Downs. Um, that marriage had soured before she left Arizona due to infidelity on her part. Yep. So she was newly divorced. She was a mother of three, and her kids were ages eight, seven, and three, and they were Christy, Cheryl, and Danny. She was a postal worker, so... Um, she had worked at the post office in Chandler, Arizona, and she was going up to Oregon and also working at that post office. Yeah, and her dad was actually the postmaster in Oregon. Wow. The postmaster himself. Whoa. Yeah, and I personally don't like them because they're with the post office. <laughs> I don't trust them. Just I think like the Irish? They might be Irish. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a quote from Friends. Yeah, it's a quote from Friends. We're not assholes. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> So on May 19th, 1983, Diane took her children out to see a woman that she knew. Heather Plord. Thank you. She went out around 930 at night. So she was leaving her friend's house then. She was driving down the road, and Christy remembers that Hungry Like the Wolf was playing the song by Duran Duran. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, if you got, I mean, yeah, just later. We'll get to why. Yep, 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 so, yep, yep. Yeah, go ahead. Quit spoiling it. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Diane took a detour to do some sightseeing at 9.30 at night. Yeah. And she also, what I don't get is she, like, when she tells this story, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more, but she's like, okay, after dinner, I did the dishes, and then she said she called and talked to a friend for about an hour. She's home alone with three kids, and Danny was three. Three. Know the, f how? What are your kids doing? Like... I've never talked on the phone for an hour near my kids. It's impossible. Like, I just don't get it. And then she's like, and then we decided to go visit a friend after dinner. I'm like, no, they know. need to be like having baths and going to bed. Exactly. Like your nights end at eight <clears throat> o'clock. Well, they I mean, begin not, at eight o'clock. We're not mommy shaming. I'm just saying like, it's the timeline is a little interesting for having three young children. Yeah. But I mean, and we'll go through it too, but she... She didn't pay a lot of attention to her kids. For so, sure. yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like, like a known fact. Yeah. It's just a very strange thing as someone with kids to hear, like, oh, I'm just chatting away with my friend for an hour. 
I mean, unless your kids are already in bed, which they're not because she takes them out after that. It's just really weird. It's like she just kind of left them to their own devices, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Diane took a detour to do the sightseeing, right? She said a man had flagged down her car and she said she had the the three sleeping kids in her car and the stranger was waving his arm. So she stopped and she said that he wanted her car. He demanded her keys and she said, you've got to be kidding. So he pushed her aside and began shooting the three kids. Which already, like... Don't add up, Diane. Yeah. She said that he shot her in the left arm. She pretended to throw her keys into the bushes because he's asking for the car keys, you know? Yeah, and he's a golden retriever. Right. Like, so <laughs> she's like, go get it! And, yeah. then, <laughs> and he's like, whoa! Oh, you got me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think that's going to work. No. Anyway. (laughs) So then she says that while he's looking for them, she like shoves him out of the way and jumps in the car. While he's holding a gun and has shot her. Right. And her three kids. She said that she drove like a lunatic to the hospital and she made it to the hospital and says, quick, my kids have been shot. Come out. Yeah. She's like laying on the horn, screaming, Mm -hmm. just like hysterical yeah so the nurses that helped them were crying so much after seeing the children like it had to have been a grisly sight oh yeah blood pouring from them everybody was emotionally fucking wrecked after that i think except for diane except for (laughs) diane yes that's true she was actually having a pretty good night yes it's important to note that diane was not bothered by it at all. No. Now, she was a little bit emotionally damaged at the thought that her new car might have bullet holes in it. That's true. That is true. Yeah. So, yes, um, Cheryl was already dead, unfortunately. Danny and Christy were badly wounded, and surgeon Dr. Stephen Wilhite said that when he saw Christy, he thought she was dead because he saw her first. Mm-hmm. And he thought that she was already dead because her pupils were dilated. Her blood pressure was non-existent. Her heart actually did stop and they had to revive her. So she did. She, she did, did die. Clinically die. Yeah. yeah. Oof. It was scary. After they bandaged Diane's gunshot wound on her forearm, mm-hmm. she she did ask the nurse once how her kids were doing. And the nurse said... Shocking. Right. And the nurse... The nurse was like, well, we've got four doctors doing all they can for them. And that was when it was decided. So once Diana had gotten to the hospital and they took the kids back to work on them, um, she called her parents and was like, because her parents lived there. She moved up there to be closer to them. Wes and Willadine Fredrickson. Mm, I kind of like the name Willadine. I do too. Um, I've never heard it except for in Dumplin', but. Willadine Dumplin'. Her name's not Dumplin'. (laughs) Willadine Dumplin'. (laughs) Willadine Dixon. Oh, right. I knew it was some like something like that. Yeah. So she called them and she's like, hurry, get here. They've, they shot the kids. They shot me too. Like all this stuff. Or he shot the kids. He shot me too. So her parents get there and then the police are like, you know, I mean, Diane's stable. She's not injured hardly at all, really. I mean, she broke her arm, but it's disproportionate to the injuries of her kids. Right. So that's more like a cosmetic wound. Exactly. Rather than a critically injured. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, okay, well we need you because what they were having trouble determining was 
exactly where the shooting took place because initially the like city police or whatever responded. Then when she told them it happened on old Mohawk road, they were like, Ooh, that might be the County. I don't. So now we've got a jurisdiction situation and they want her to take them where it is so they can see if maybe if the guy left on foot or whatever, could they find him and all this stuff. So she is going to go with the detectives to the scene of the crime and point out exactly where it happened. Cause they said, you know, she's only moved here about two months ago. She said she's not super familiar with the area, but she thinks that if she was driven back there, she could point it out. So they're like, okay. So her dad, Wes, and she go with the detectives to Old Mohawk Road. <clears throat> and on the way out, a nurse approached Diane and knelt down to speak to her. And she said, one of your girls is really bad. She may not be alive when you get back. And Diane was like, Okay, thanks for the information. And then they walk out, and on the way out of the hospital, Diane sees the car because at this point there's a a deputy like guarding it, standing around it. They've kind of got it roped off or whatever. Because it's a crime scene. Yeah. And she looks over at it and says, oh, I really hope my car is okay. Are there any bullet holes in it? And the officer is like, oh, What? Um, I don't know. We haven't really had anybody like check it over. And she's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I just want to make sure my car is okay. And well, you can have more kids, but you cannot replace a car. Exactly. Exactly. And she just bought the car. So, you know, yeah. and then on the way to old Mohawk road, she's in the car and she says really quietly, I never should have bought the unicorn. And the detective is like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I bought this unicorn, like a brass unicorn statue, and it was meant to like symbolize the start of the new chapter of our lives. And so I had the kids' names engraved in it. And she's like, it was just this, you know, like celebration of our new chapter. I never should have bought it. Now something bad has happened. Like she kept saying, I never should have got that unicorn. And because like, she spent money on it because now it's worthless? Like I'm confused. Uh, was it like an omen? Did she? I think she like... I don't know, almost, yeah, considered it like an omen or was trying to tell them, oh, you know, I, I did this thing and it was supposed to like be celebrating all the... And I jinxed it or something. Yeah, she's trying to make it seem like everything was going so perfect and gotcha. I was so happy and whatever. And then on the way out there, she's talking about how now she remembers that when they were driving down the road before they saw the man, that there was an icky yellow car parked along the road as she was driving, but they didn't see any cars parked there now when they got there. And so at this point, like a massive manhunt is initiated. Diane is brought back to the hospital. And then that's where she learns that Cheryl had died. Um, she had suffered two gunshot wounds, one to each shoulder, and both of them would have been fatal. Like either one of them would have killed her, but she was shot twice. So, and Christy had been shot in the chest and Danny was shot almost dead center in his spine. So, and his wound was covered in gunpowder and de debris indicating that it was either like a contact wound or very close contact with the barrel of the gun that shot him. Officer Doug Welch, he was interviewing her and he said that her demeanor was super flat. Even though she had just found out that Cheryl had passed away, she was... Mm -hmm unemotional, did not have any tears, not hysterical, nothing. And in the interview, she explained her version of what happened. And she said, 
something that was odd to me and to everyone else, I guarantee it. But she just said, I just kept saying, God, do what's best. If they have to die, let them die. Just don't let them suffer. And when Dr. Wilhite finished with Christy, he walked, he went over to Diane and said that she had no emotion whatsoever, of course. And she said to him, man, that really ruined my car. I got blood all over the back of it. Uh, yeah. Your child has just died. Yes. You have two children she in critical condition. She had more condition. emotion about her car than she did about her child She did. Away. She kept talking about that she just bought the car and yeah, how the blood was just going to ruin everything and that's your children's blood. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot imagine being worried whatsoever about anything that is ruined. Like even when like, I remember one time Ben just fell down in the driveway and he cut his face a little bit and he came inside and I was wearing a stark white shirt and I just picked him up and grabbed him and Andrew was like, you're going to get blood all over your shirt. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to hold him. Like he was mm -hmm. so upset. I felt so bad and it totally ruined my shirt, but I didn't give a shit. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not kid. my car, but yeah, it's my kid. <laughs> yeah. Like that I just can cannot be imagine in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know for her to say like, look, if you have, if they have to die, just take them. Like, that's fine. How do you, yeah. I think the, I mean, I guess I know it's always, we say it a lot. It's a slippery slope to say how somebody should react. Sure. And I guess I can, I mean, I can understand you don't want your kids to suffer for sure. Right. Um, but I, I mean, but I, I feel like the natural reaction for a mother would be, I want to take their place. Take me instead. Mm -hmm. Like, don't Especially take the girl. if what she said happened actually happened. Right. If there was an actual gunman there. And he shot all of them. She would have jumped in front of those <clears throat> children. Yes, because I just read about um, the school shooting. Maybe it was Parkland in Florida. And there was a girl that had survived and her best friend had passed away. And she just committed suicide because she couldn't handle like the survivor's guilt. Oh, my God. It's terrible. That's horrible. But And not that that's like a normal thing or that's what you should do. But for your children to die or your child to die and you to be there still and something traumatic happening and... I don't know. I don't think suicide is ever the answer, but it's like, how is, how do you just, how are you just like, well, you know, just don't let them suffer. That's the only thing, you know, like, yeah, which is obviously, now, how can I get a new car? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't add up. Well, and the fact that when she says she's driving like a lunatic to the hospital, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's driving super fast. She says initially that at first she didn't realize that she'd been shot. But then she wrapped her arm up. She had bandaged it up with a towel. Yes. So she finds the towel. She says at some point her arm started to hurt. And she grabbed a towel from somewhere in the car and she wrapped it up. She didn't even think to wrap up her children who have multiple gunshot wounds or no. take care of their wounds. The thing about this towel, though, is it was incredibly neatly folded up. It wasn't something that was grabbed and wrapped around in a, you know... Hasty like, manner. Yeah. She had taken care to fold it perfectly, which I don't know how you would do while you're driving. And while you have a gunshot wound. Yeah. And she'd wrapped it up. So she made sure to wrap her own bandage. Her daughter, Cheryl, who did die from her wounds was in the floorboard of the passenger seat of the car up front next to her, bleeding profusely. Well, and she said she wasn't moving at all. She doesn't try to stop her bleeding at all, but she wraps her own wound up. And 
that kind of also, I don't know, did you ever hear about the Uber driver who like went on a crazy shooting spree a few years ago? Maybe, keep going. He was like literally on an Uber route, like he was picking people up, dropping them off, and then like killing people. He killed like several people that night. Wow. He went to an apartment complex to pick some people up, and he couldn't find the girl that like had requested the Uber or whatever. This woman was walking with her kids and like some of her uh, friends' kids or whatever to go to the park in the apartment complex. Well, he can't find the girl he's trying to find. He sees them start shooting them. I mean, sh- just shooting them up. The woman who's with the kids, these some of these aren't even her kids. She jumps in front of the children. She got shot like seven times. Oh, my gosh. She almost died, and she didn't even realize she was shot until she got to the hospital. Oh, wow. She never once tried to... To do anything for herself, she was only trying to save these children. She saved them all. They all lived. She lived, too, but miraculously. Right. Um, But she didn't think about whether she was going to live or die or whatever. No, and she certainly didn't stop in the middle of what she was doing to wrap her wounds up. Yeah, and been like, well, sucks for you. Yeah, because I think some of the kids did get shot, um, but not nearly as much as she did. But she literally became a human barricade for these kids. And I don't know. It's just like, it's just so disproportionate Mm -hmm. to to what anybody else in that situation would have done I feel like Mm -hmm. so yeah and then at about 1 a.m so you know all this is happening pretty late at about 1 a.m two detectives run tests on Diane so they're looking for gunpowder on her hands and that would determine help determine whether or not she'd fired a gun that night that test was negative she didn't have any gunpowder residue on her hands. Hmm. During the interview, the detectives learned that Diane had moved to Oregon only about seven or eight... <laughs> seven or eight weeks ago? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, seven or eight weeks prior to the shooting. Her mother, Willa Dean, actually kept the kids for her most days. So she would keep them until her shift ended. And a lot of times she would keep them for dinner and then... Diane would come and pick them up. So she talked to detectives until almost 3 a.m. when they finally were able to end the interview. And she ended up staying in the hospital for a few days. So she just went back to her room. Um, She was going to have to have surgery later on for her arm. But at that time, it didn't need to happen. So um, she ended up giving consent to have her home and her car searched. So she's, you know, oh, yes, anything you need to do to find the gunman, like, I'm totally fine with that. You can you can search everything. They asked her if she had any weapons, and she told them that she had a twenty two rifle that would be on the shelf in her house in a closet, and that, you know, they could take it if they needed to, and that she had a thirty eight caliber pistol in the trunk of her car. It was a Saturday night special, she said, and she said it didn't work very well. She didn't use it, but she kept it in the trunk so that her kids couldn't get a hold of it. And she denied owning any other weapons. That was it. Just the twenty two rifle and a thirty eight pistol. The story sent all of Oregon into panic. Like, people would not... Because, you know, there's this gunman on the loose, and they're too, super scared about it, so they didn't want any of their kids to be out of their sight. People were terrified that something like this could happen to their children. There were no sightings of the suspect or his car, and Danny and Christy, meanwhile, are still super gravely ill. The police had only found some bullet casings but no gun, so they started canvassing the area, and they came up with a composite of the suspect. 
When detectives searched her duplex, they were surprised to find the home was bare bones. It looked like someone had just moved in like a few days before that. They said there was hardly any furniture at all in the house. There was none downstairs at all except one chair and a TV set. There were four photos in the home total. Two of Diane. She had two pictures of herself. Nice. And two of a dark-haired, bearded man. So... They're thinking maybe this could be Nick because she has this tattoo on her shoulder with the name Nick underneath, but they don't know who he is at this point. They didn't find any photos of the kids anywhere in the house. They did also find the brass unicorn statue. It was engraved with Christy, Cheryl, and Danny, I love you, Mom, May 13th, 1983. Then they moved upstairs. There they found unpacked boxes everywhere. Diane had a king size waterbed, which is like so eighties. So I can't even 80s. handle it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um, and it was perfectly made. So pretty much the only thing in the house that looked like somebody lived there was like her little area of the bedroom, and that was it. Everything else was like unpacked boxes, no furniture anywhere, just literally like what they needed. Like, where did the kids sleep though? I don't know. I mean, I guess I would think they had beds, but there was like nothing else. Wow. At all. And everything and no was pictures of them. Like no. no pic- yeah. <laughs> it was like they didn't live there. So sad. Um, Diane had asked the detectives to retrieve her diary while they were in the home and bring it to her in the hospital. So they did find it when they were searching the home. And it basically looked like a series of unmailed letters written to Nick. And the first entry was written in April of that year. So we're in May. So just like a month and a half before that. The diary was copied before they brought it back to Diane at the hospital. Diane fell for Nick big time. Big time. Big time. uh, He was married, but he was separated from his wife, Charlene, at the time. She So Diane was thinking that Nick who was her coworker at the post office in Chandler, Arizona, would follow her to Oregon when she left. And when um, the author, Anne Rule, she wrote Small Sacrifices about the case. And when Anne Rule interviewed Nick after everything happened, he said, Anne, I was just so glad when I realized the she crossed the county line that I never considered following her. And apparently Diane was like super heartbroken about it because she, I mean, she was obsessed with him. Obsessed. We will get into that a lot in a little bit. Yeah. She was like, she was fucking crazy. They were able to locate the 22 rifle that Diane mentioned and they did find bullets, 22 caliber copper washed bullets with a U stamped on them. They took those into evidence for testing and comparison. Forensic investigators analyzed the car, which was pretty much completely undamaged. There were no bullet holes, no gunpowder on the exterior doors or the windows. And remember, Diane said, or maybe we haven't gotten into detail about this, but she said that the gunman, at this point, she says the gunman was out standing outside the car and he kind of leaned in the window to shoot them. Mm-hmm. So especially if he's like in contact with the exterior of the car, you would expect to find some of that gunpowder somewhere out mm-hmm. there and there's none. Yeah. So they thought that was a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. The inside of the car was upholstered in red fabric. So it actually made it pretty difficult to differentiate the blood from the upholstery. 
I don't know if that was something that she did on purpose or not, because she had only bought the car a couple months before that in February. So I don't know if she had that plan in the works then or if she just happened to have a red upholstered car. It's very convenient for her. It really is. Um, So there was no blood on the driver's side or any smears on the steering wheel. And in the floorboard of the passenger side under the glove compartment, the investigators found a spent twenty two bullet. So there were gunpowder particles in both sides of the back seat and the passenger seat, none in the front driver's side of the car. There was blood and vomit where Christy had been and two twenty two caliber casings stamped you. Detectives did locate the thirty eight caliber pistol in the trunk that Diane mentioned in her interview, but it was definitely not the gun that was used in the attack. That afternoon, Steve Downs, so her ex-husband, flew in from Arizona to be with his family. When he was asked if Diane owned any guns, he told them that, yes, she had three, a twenty-two rifle, a thirty-eight Special, and a twenty-two Ruger pistol, which Diane did not mention to the police. So Steve tells them that he showed her how to operate all three guns. She could load and shoot all three. So it wasn't like she had this gun and she didn't know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't believe that she was capable of hurting the children in any way. He he was really firm in believing that she would die for those kids. He He at first had no inkling that she could have had anything to do with it. So by the third day after the shooting, the detectives had talked with Diane multiple times. And her story at this point is evolving slightly with each telling. And one thing that Nancy Grace said in the in that 2020 episode, which I thought, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like Nancy Grace, whatever, but um, she does make some good points. Like the way she explains some stuff, it feels like a good explanation, I guess. Like I think it's just her delivery that a lot of people have an issue with. Yeah, that's issue it. With, yeah. yeah. So she said in that special that... A person who's telling the truth might remember additional details like as time goes on, especially in a traumatic experience because, you know, your brain is kind of like in a fog or whatever. Yeah, and it's like Celine Dion, it's all coming back to me now. Exactly. But what they don't do is change things. So there's a difference because I think that, I and I think that that sometimes is a little bit fluid in cases like... People will look at somebody's story and say, well, their story changed every time they told me. And maybe that person was just recalling additional information as they go on. Just adding to it. Yeah. And then vice versa. Now I'm saying, well, now I remember this, but it's completely different. Like in the Seth Jackson case where she's like, oh, and um, yeah. And then I heard a loud pop. It's like, okay, where the fuck was the loud pop the first time? Right. So that's changing your story, not adding to it. And that's a crucial part of, it's not like, oh, well, actually, I think... Um, I, I can't even think of anything that would be an example for that. (laughs) I don't know. It's a, it's a huge part of the, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. And her, like, it's going to raise red flags if you start changing stuff. So at this point, she's, she's not just saying, she's not just remembering additional things like, oh, and now I remember he was wearing a red hat or whatever, you know, right, 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 right. Now she remembers, or now when she's telling it, because she's, I think she's forgetting some of the specific details she told before. Right. And when you tell lies, it's hard to keep track of them all. It is. And when you tell lies, a lot of times you give too much detail because you're trying to bolster the fact that you're lying. You're trying to show that 
you're being truthful. So you're adding all these minute details yeah, you embellish that, and- yeah, that you don't need that aren't even relevant to the story, but you add them in because you think it makes your story more believable. But then you forget all those details. And then every time you tell it, you can't remember. So now she's saying that the man stuck, like instead of him leaning into the window, he had stood outside and stuck his like arm all the way in. So like he's a pretty good shot for not even seeing what the fuck he was shooting. Yeah. So now he's got his arm in. He's not leaning in anymore. And the first time she told the story, the killer had been standing in the road. But then later she says he jogged up to her car to ask for it. She distinctly remembered the kids were asleep when she came upon the man in the road. But then later in some tellings, they were awake and they were laughing. And then she remembers Christy was talking about this or that. Or or no, she said she and Cheryl were talking when they saw the man. So before it was, once I realized the kids were asleep, I started taking detours to go sightseeing. And then she says, oh, and we were awake, awake and laughing. And, you know, Cheryl and I are talking about this or that. And then we see the man. So it's like... Very completely different Yeah, which is versions. Yeah. Upon looking into Diane's past, detectives learned that she had a painful childhood, according to her. So she tells them that she was the oldest of five children, and she was completely ignored by her mother. Her father had begun molesting her at age 12, and her mother allowed it to continue by not stepping in. So she kind of described her father as just like authoritative and just hard man and that her mom basically just let him do whatever he wanted for fear of upsetting him and ignored Diane completely and basically didn't like her. Well, it's interesting because her mom, and I don't know what kind of person she was or is, but her mom did a lot for her taking care of the kids every damn day. She did. And she seemed really close with her parents to move all the way up here for them. Yeah, so I mean if, up here. <laughs> We're not in Oregon, but you oh know. Oh god. Um yes, it would just be too cold for me, that's why. Um but yeah, so and if okay, if you've spent your whole life trying to get away from this man who's been molesting you, why would you move? Why would you move all the way from Arizona to Oregon? Yeah. And live like basically right next to them and leave your kids alone with them every single day. It doesn't make sense. This reminds me a lot of Casey Anthony. Mm-hmm. You know, she she relied on her parents a lot. She was close to her parents. And then as soon as she gets arrested, she throws George under the bus saying he molested her. And there's no proof of it anywhere, which I know there's sometimes there's not, you know, if you don't report it right away and all that kind of stuff. But it was never proven. Mm-hmm. So these are just allegations that she throughout there and then well, later it, it works for her at the time <laughs> exactly and then later she ended up recanting it and her dad holds the torch for her he still fights for her he has a website for her innocence like wow. he he believes her and and after i think diane is one of those people that she claims abuse on everybody's part towards her but she's the manipulative one mm-hmm. like she's the one who who takes over people. And I think she's the one who's abusive Mm -hmm. because people, even after her accusing her dad of molesting her, he still believes her 100% in her innocence and still fights to get her out of prison. Steve, no matter how many times she cheated on him, still took her back. Right. Yeah. But she says he was abusive to her. Like, I don't get it. So she, she said that, She was pretty much a genius. 
she said if she wasn't like genius level, then she was like one literally like a hair away from it. That's how smart she was. Yeah. In one interview I saw, she said she was three points away from genius. Yeah. So she, um, she thought that she could maybe gain acceptance from her peers by being super smart. So, cause she just really didn't fit in. She didn't have a lot of friends, all that kind of stuff. So she thought her academics would make her get friends, which I mean, if anybody's ever seen non-other teen movie, you can't be smart and boys like you <laughs> can't have glasses and a ponytail. Exactly. It's just not going to work. <laughs> so she started cutting her wrist. She said when she was 13 and she still didn't get any attention from her parents. And she also said that she was too much of a chicken to really cut herself. So she kind of really just scratched the surface. And I guess she thought that her parents would give her more attention or that other people would give her more attention. She said she was never allowed to cry. So instead she laughed even at inappropriate times. That's a real thing. That's legit. (laughs) Yeah. People do that. I mean, they definitely, it's like a defense mechanism or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Chandler. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, could he be any more inappropriate? Yeah. Or dead inside, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, she was just, like, all over the place. She definitely had some mental or mood issues very early on. Um, so, th- I think that just really kind of plays into everything. And that's a big part of her defense, too. Like, her defense attorney really played on the fact that she did laugh when she was uncomfortable or when she was upset because she was, she felt like she was never allowed to cry. And she blames that on this abuse that she suffered from her parents, that they never let her cry. And I, I just, I don't know that that's true. Always the victim, Diane. Diane married Steve Downs on November the 13th, 1973. So he was basically like her ticket out of that house. They, you know, got together when they were very young and then she married him like the moment she could marry him legally. So it was only two weeks after the wedding that she realized she'd made a mistake. She said that she felt like Steve only loved her for sexual purposes. And she also said that she basically went from her father to Steve who both only wanted her sexually, which I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I don't believe that. Um, and again, like she's going to be talking about how Steve was this abuser or whatever, but she's the one who realized, you know, that she made a mistake and then she goes on to like do all of these awful things to Steve. So I don't know, but she decided that since she didn't love Steve and he didn't really love her the way she thought he should, or for the reason she thought he should or whatever, she would grow her own source of love. So she threw away her birth control, didn't tell Steve, because they, I believe, had talked about it and were not ready to have kids yet. Steve wasn't anyway. And she got pregnant with Christy. So Christy was the perfect baby. She was content. She was easy. She didn't cry that much. Like, Diane just fell in love with her. And the more that she fell in love with Christy, the more she hated Steve. She began to be, like, repulsed by him. And not that looks or everything, but Steve was a good-looking guy. Was he? Yeah, you didn't see him? No, I didn't watch the whole thing. Mm. He was good-looking. Mm, nice. Good catch for Diane. She could have done a lot worse, I'm just saying. What did Nick look like? Did you see him? I did not see him. Oh. But I will Google now. 
Great. Um, so she basically hated Steve by this point. And she said that Steve would choke her. She said he was verbally abusive, that he would beat her, that he would tell her every day just awful things, that he couldn't afford her, like, I don't know, all this stuff. She, um, she said Steve cheated on her. Like, she just painted Steve to be this awful husband. And the more her marriage fell apart, she decided she needed to get pregnant again. And she said she was just going to build a wall of love that Steve couldn't break down because Steve was the one who didn't show love, I guess. So she got pregnant again, and this time she got pregnant with Cheryl. And Cheryl was colicky. She couldn't be comforted. She cried all the time. It was much harder than the first baby, and Diane said that she wasn't even cute. Wow. Yeah. So Mother she, of the year. Yeah. So she was like, didn't want to, didn't want to have any more kids after that. She said she and Steve both decided no more kids needed to be had. So Steve went and got a vasectomy, and he failed to go back for his follow up. So he's supposed to go back like however many weeks later to do a sperm count and make sure that everything's good. This is a true testament to how important follow-up appointments are. Oh, yes. And um, she got pregnant again. <laughs> so um, the vasectomy didn't take the first time. So this time she decided she was going to have an abortion because she said that if if she'd had another baby like Cheryl, like she was really afraid to have another kid like Cheryl because she had a hard time with it. It was like, it was like having a kid. Well, first of all, she just liked being pregnant, but the having the kid part only worked for her when it was easy, when it was, the baby was content or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then she was okay with the kid part of it. But because Cheryl was so difficult, she said that she was already like under so much pressure um, her parents were pressuring her to potty train Christy, and Christy wasn't ready yet. And she got pregnant with this third baby, and they already had like a lot of financial strain. They couldn't afford another kid. And she said that if she'd had another colicky baby like Cheryl, it wouldn't have been loved. So she just How decided. How does a mother say that? I do not understand it. I do not understand it. Yeah. I mean,. Wow. It's awful. How could you say that your child wouldn't be loved? I don't know. I mean, yeah, whatever. So um, Steve ended up having another vasectomy, and this time he went to his follow-up appointment. He made sure. So over the years, Diane loved Steve like over and over and over. She would go through these phases of like everything's okay, and then she'd pack up the kids and leave, and then when she couldn't get a – job or couldn't afford it on her own she'd come back and Steve took her back every single time he never ever told her no so at one point she decided she started getting obsessed with the baby that she'd aborted she decided that and I don't know if they knew that it was going to be a girl or if she just in her head was like it was a girl because I don't know how at what point of the pregnancy it happened but she named the baby Carrie And she started obsessing over Carrie and she felt like she needed to replace Carrie, which I don't know how you use that word with a kid. Replace. You don't replace them. They're not, they're not like 
parts on your car, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, yeah, it's, they're, they're different people. They're people. So she decides she's got to replace this kid. She's got to have another kid. So she tells Steve, she wants him to reverse his vasectomy. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Hell no, I'm not reversing my vasectomy. Like we already said, we don't need to have another kid. Like how many times do we have to talk about this? I wonder at what point or if ever Steve was like, you're batshit crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. So she's like, okay, fine. She'll, I'll just find a sperm donor then. So she found a guy that she worked with. So at that time she was an electrician. She was like wiring mobile homes and apparently she was like super good at it. So at home she was this like sullen, depressed, wildly unhappy person. She was always stressed. She was always like at the end of a rope. She was pissed off all the time, but at work, she was like vivacious and flirty and witty and just like the best version of herself. Yeah. Just like all the guys liked her because they were like, well, she's pretty and is she pretty? No, but I guess in the eighties, maybe she was interesting, but, and they're like, and she's super cool. Like she's like one of the guys she's fun to hang out with, like all this stuff. I just feel like this is another case of, does she have beer flavored nipples? I know. What is it? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. So um, she started sleeping with dudes that she worked with. Of course. And it's an obvious next step. Yes, of course. And so she picked out, she said basically what she was doing was genetic research. Oh. You know, so she's just banging for research purposes. We've all been there. Of course. So she's trying to find somebody like whose genes does she want to have a a kid with basically. Sure. So she lands on this kid that's 19, which she was really young then. Right. Because she was only 27 when she moved. Yeah. Or when her kids were four. No, she was was 27. 27. Because it was just a few weeks. So, and Danny was three by that point. And this is when she gets pregnant with Danny. So she would have only been like 23, 24 at this point. So she's really young. Yeah. Um, But still 19 is like especially a baby. Yeah. So she lands on this 19 year old kid and he's like, you know, hell yeah, I'm going to get laid. Like this is awesome. And then she's just literally had sex with him one time and got pregnant and that was it. Oh my gosh. So fertile Myrtle. Yeah. And I'm sure Russ was like, cause that's the kid's name. Yeah. He was like, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What? We're getting married. You want me to call you tomorrow? And she's like, that's not going to be necessary. Thank you. This is over. So standing outside of her home. Yeah. Diane. And, um, so a week later she told Steve that she was pregnant and he was like, well, I knew it wasn't my kid because I had my vasectomy checked and it was, it was working. So I knew she'd gotten pregnant with somebody else. I know. And he was like, well, I'm going to stay with you. And he, she ended up giving birth to Stephen Daniel Downs and Steve was smitten. He fell in love with this kid. Oh it gosh. did not matter to him that it was not his biological child. He He's loved Danny. either a saint or so ridiculous. I can't figure out which one. I think he's partially. Both? Yeah. I mean, I, but again, I mean, I don't know. I guess he was manipulated by her too. True, and it's hard to come out like a lot. A lot of times, hindsight's twenty twenty. Once you get out of it completely, you're like, "Oh wow, yeah, exactly." You're like, "I cannot believe bamboozled." Yeah, exactly. So, a little bit after this, this is now nineteen eighty. Diane is watching the Donahue show. 
Hmm. I think she was watching Sally Jesse Raphael, oh, and then yes. Donahue came on. Sure, sure. So she, they did an episode about surrogate pregnancy, and she was like, "This is it. This is what I'm supposed to do." Well, pairs her two favorite things: money and being pregnant. Exactly. So she's like, "Okay, this is a win-win. I get to be pregnant. Check. I get money. Check. I don't have to have kids come home with me. Check. Like all the things that I want to do." So. She wrote in to the place or whatever to apply because she found out she'd get paid $10,000 if she did it. So, and she said that pregnancy was the only thing she'd ever found that made her happy. So. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I mean, I guess there are some women who like glow when they're pregnant. I'm, it's just not me. But for that to be the only thing that makes you happy, like that's interesting too. Starbucks is the only thing that makes me happy. Oh, yeah. Not even my family. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, pregnancy was like her. And she also like, she's already like such a bitch. But then another thing I hate about her is that every time she got pregnant, she got pregnant like 11 billion times. And every time she'd gained like four pounds, her ankles were like as small as they ever were. She lost all her baby weight in like a week and a half. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, that's I mean, just rude. It's just rude. My ankles were as big as my thighs. <laughs> like well, you retained a lot of water. I that was scary. Still. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, I guess if you literally like have no bounce back time, maybe, I don't know. She just, she loved being pregnant and like she carried on affairs while she was pregnant. Like none of that bothered her. Oh she God. didn't like, uh, it's just insane. So around that time, she started working at the post office as a substitute letter carrier. And then we know that she goes on to do it full time. She moves to Oregon. Um, so Diane and Steve fly to Kentucky, which is where the surrogate pregnancy clinic was. And they have to do an interview and some psychological evaluations. So the doctor who interviewed them, because since she was married, she had to do like, they wanted to know like what the marriage was like and there's a lot of medical questions on the the form that she filled out or whatever. And she, of course, lied on like all of them. She denied ever having an abortion. She denied ever, you know, having any mental problems like depression or um, or cutting herself and stuff like that. So she denied anything that would look to them like, you know, maybe I don't want these genes in my child or whatever. Um, and... Of course, I'm not saying that if you have depression, you shouldn't have kids. Everybody, I think, goes through that. But she just, she wasn't truthful. And that's just, they ask those questions and they expect you to be honest. Mm -hmm. So, and also, you can't escape Diane's insanity. Like, if you meet her and talk to her, you're going to know that she's batshit. Like, yeah. she's not Crazier just than like a some, shithouse rat. Yeah, like, she's not just somebody who goes through some depression sometimes or whatever. Like, there's there's something wrong there. There's a lot of manic episodes. Yes. And she, the doctor noted in his report after he did the interview, there's considerable neurotic interplay both in this marriage and this woman's total adjustment to life. The examiner believed that based on the testing, Diane would not surrender a surrogate baby when the time came. And they also noted possible personality disorders and her like really weird ability to turn her emotions just on and off whenever she wanted to. I kind of wish I could do that sometimes. Yeah. Just saying. I guess it's a good thing that we can't because, because she could, not only could she turn them off and on, 
I don't know that she actually had them. I think she pretended to have emotion when she needed to. Well, maybe it's like, because I heard about, like, I did some research on sociopaths. And what they do is they watch yeah, people around them and they mimic what they feel like you should yeah. act like. Exactly. So she puts on this performance basically that she thinks is appropriate at the time because she's not actually feeling anything. Right. So she's just like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Where, so I can manipulate a situation because it's always about manipulation. Exactly. What's going to give me the biggest gain? So even after all of that and the testing, they accepted her into the program. Of course, they didn't know that she'd lied on her other stuff, but even after that psychological evaluation and, and they thought she's not going to give this baby up, this could go like super bad. Cause what if she, what if she decided she wasn't going to give the baby up and then killed herself and killed the baby? Like there's a lot of things that could happen with that. Yeah. And they were like, what if well, she took off and went somewhere? And, yeah. Yeah. Let's give it a shot. Yeah. No like, All right. All right. So fine. Hang him. <laughs> so, um, at this point she's accepted the program. She gets, artificially inseminated. She's pregnant. She's super happy. She ignores Steve completely. She's so fucking over him. She cannot even deal with it. So, and then she just like slept with everybody. She could. So really throwing her cat around. Really? So she had her kids with sitters almost all the time. And if she couldn't find a sitter, she'd just leave them home alone. So at this point, Christy is six, Cheryl's five and Danny is 15 months old. And, I guess she'd been asking Steve for a divorce. She wanted to leave him for a really long time. Obviously. And she would do it every once in a while, and then she'd come back. So Steve finally told her, like, look, if you for real want to get a divorce, if you really want to leave and, like, you're going to do it for real, then you just need to pay me the interest on the house, which is $5,000, and I'll sign the papers for you. And she's like, done. So she moves out. And she started dating a guy that she worked with at the post office. So, I'm sorry, Steve moved out. So, two weeks after Steve moves out, this guy, Mac, moves in with his two daughters. And what she did was ask Mac for the $5,000 to pay Steve. So, Mac pays the $5,000. He's thinks Diane is, like, super cool chick, loves hanging out with her at work. She's awesome. I don't get it. I know. He moves in with her. And it does not take Mac long to realize that he made a huge mistake. So, because at home, she's a completely different person. She's hateful. She's mean-spirited. He said that she called her kids super vulgar names, like cursing at them all the time. And then when she started in on his girls, he was like, well, fuck that. I'm leaving. And he was like, I don't even care if you pay me back the $5,000. Like, I'm out of here. He did not want to put his kids... Good for him. Yeah, in a situation where they had to deal with her. So I definitely, hats off to you, Mac. Mm -hmm. uh, so once Diane completed her surrogate pregnancy contract, and she did give the baby back. Like, you know, they, they kept the baby with her for a few days, I guess for, I guess, <laughs> I guess for like breastfeeding and all that. But she did actually give the baby back with no problems. So once she finished that, she got her $10,000. She did pay Mac his 5000 and then she used the rest for a vacation and a down payment on a mobile home. So during this time, she decided she wanted to seduce every male employee of the post office in Chandler. It's a lofty goal. Yeah, literally, like that's what she set out to do. So she said she decided to work her way through the employees of the post office, and that just totally reminded me of the breakup where... 
Jennifer Aniston is like talking about her sister and Vince Vaughn is like, she slept with the whole offensive line of the Arizona Cardinals or whatever. And Jennifer Aniston's like, my sister's been through a lot. And he's like, yeah, a lot of dick. Like <laughs> Diane, Diane has definitely went through a lot of dick. So after having a short affair with Nick's friend, I think his name was Jack. Mm. Um, she moved on to Nick. <laughs> so basically when she had this affair with this other guy, and the other guy was like, yeah, I think I'm kind of done with this. And she's like, okay, I'll shoot for Nick then. No problem. So she's just like, whatever. So then... On to the next. Yeah, on to the next. So then she started having an affair with Nick, which seemed to be no problem for her. It was like, it wasn't like, I, I wonder if this married man is going to have an affair with me. It was, I'm going to have an affair with this married man. And he was like, okay. It was just like a done deal every time it seemed like. How is she so like hypnotic or something uh, it's gotta be beer flavored nipples there's no other be. explanation so in her diary diane wrote i love mtv <laughs> and they said that <laughs> her doesn't uh, yeah they said that her diary was like a teenager like the way she wrote about stuff and she talked about the music and how much she loved nick and that she wanted to marry him she wrote on and on and on about him and she said her favorite song was Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran because it reminded her of making love to Nick. <gasps> so is it Something a coincidence? I don't want to picture. Uh, yeah. Is it a coincidence that she was playing that tape? While she was murdering her children? Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't like it happened to be on the radio at the time. It was in her tape deck. Like, it was there. Mm -hmm. So after a while, Nick broke things off. When Diane came back from Kentucky the second time, and Nick didn't pick her up. So she went back out there to get artificially inseminated again. She was going to do the surrogate thing again. And that time it didn't take. Um, and when she came back, she expected Nick was going to be there. Even though he had broken up with her, she thought, I'm going to be gone for a few days. He'll want to come back or whatever. And Steve was there. And she was like, the fuck is this guy doing here? She was pissed. But also, why the fuck was Steve? Why? I don't know. So... She realized then that, like, maybe Nick was really done with her, and she was pretty devastated. So Steve took her home, and she ran and locked herself in her bathroom, and she said, well, just don't worry about it, Steve. I'll just kill myself. And so she ran in there, and she locked the door, and then he heard a gunshot, and he was like, oh, shit. So he, like, bust the door down, and Diane's sitting in there fine. She was not harmed, but she'd shot a hole in the floor. And then she raises the gun and points it at him, and she's like, Steve, I can't kill myself, but I can kill you. And he's like, huh? And so she kind of pauses for a second and he lunged at her and grabbed the gun. And he said she was like scratching at her face. She was acting like, like very strange, like scratching her face to the point that she was bleeding. She the was like losing it. Possessed. So Steve told the police that she had used the 22 caliber pistol that night to when she threatened to shoot herself. And that he thought that bullet hole was probably still in the floor of the mobile home because she'd never had it fixed. And the detectives were like, well, if the hole is still there, then I bet that casing is still underneath the home. So they went and searched it forever. And they did finally find it. It was like four days into it. So this is like 120 degree weather in Arizona. They're having to dig under this house Yikes. and they find it and they send it off for testing to see if they could match it. What, what, what kind of like bugs and stuff were underneath that house? Like scorpions? Oh my God. I bet there was totally <sighs> scorpions. 
Ugh. Ew. Ew, it's disgusting. They probably make that terrible noise like on uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Like, ksh, ksh, ksh. <laughs> Exactly. So while they were broken up, she and Nick. Sure. She got a rose tattoo on her shoulder with her name with his name on it. Of course to, she did. Yeah, exactly. While they're broken up. To symbolize their pure love. And he's like, eh, you're crazy. <laughs> Stage so, five clinger. Exactly. And then he's like, well, okay, I guess we'll get back together. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he said, I basically didn't have time to think. I was with her all day at work and all night for months. And I'm thinking, where in the fuck is your wife? Yes, he's still married to Charlene. Yeah, and he lives with her. He's Ugh. not, He at this point, he hasn't moved out yet. So how is he with Diane for months? Because at first, when he first started dating her, he said to him it was just a fling. And he said that he kind of felt like he wasn't super happy in his marriage. He'd only been married to Charlene for like a couple of years at this point. So fuck you, Nick. I'm sorry, but yeah. I don't like you either. Yeah. And... He's like, well, I think a fling is probably what I need. Like, just something easy, quick. I'm not going to have an emotional relationship. Just, like, have sex. Quick and dirty. Yeah. And then move on. So, little did he know Diane was going to sink her claws in. But he said that initially when they first started dating, he would not spend time with her if she had the kids. Mm -hmm. Because he felt like it's just a fling. It's not right. Like, I shouldn't be introduced into their lives if I'm not going to stick around. For sure. And plus it probably was too early anyway. You yeah, know, exactly. Like even if they were to stay together, it was going to go somewhere. Yeah. But she like busted out art family. Album and, like <laughs> had their pictures superimposed together so you could see what their kids would look like. <laughs> exactly. So this time, even though he says he never meant it, he agreed to leave Charlene and move in with Diane and the kids. So he said he would break up with her all the time, but he couldn't seem to stay away from her for too long. Why would he agree to that, even if he didn't mean it? Like, what was that about? I don't know. He, the way he talked about it was like she was always basically talking at him. Like, she was always in his ear, always in his head, telling him all this stuff, and he just kind of got lost in it. I don't know. So then he said he finally asked Charlene for a divorce, and she was like, no, I'm not going to divorce you. And so he ended up moving out, and he got an apartment. So he said Diane was there one night and she said, well, who do you love more, me or Charlene? And he was like, well, she took it too far because first of all, I mean, I guess from Diane's standpoint, it's, it's mixed signals for sure coming from him, but it's such like a lifetime original movie. It really is. And, but for him, that was too far because he, he's still like, deep down really wasn't looking for a serious relationship so at all even with his wife apparently so he said well I love Charlene more like if you're gonna ask I'm gonna tell you and she flipped out and he said she was like screaming ranting raving it was so bad that he ended up leaving and he went and stayed with Charlene that night and Charlene let him stay there. I would have been like uh, you can sleep in your motherfucking car <laughs> for all I care but whatever so she followed him there. She ended up leaving his apartment, driving to their house, banging on all the doors and windows and shit. And when they didn't come to the door to open it, she started calling over and over and over and over. And you would think after that, that he would break up with her, right? For good. Mm -hmm. No, of course not. Then he, she tells him she's going to transfer to Oregon, probably because she thinks, well, if I say I'm leaving... He'll realize he can't live without me. He'll leave Charlene for good. And he'll propose to me. Yes. Like, she's trying to solicit some sort of a, a commitment from him. And it did not work. <laughs> so he was like, look, um, 
okay, that's fine. If you want to leave, have a good life. Yeah. But why don't you move in with me for the two weeks until your transfer goes through? You and the kids move in with me. So now Diane's like, boom, we're together forever. We just got married. Like in her mind, they're married now, basically. Mm -hmm. So he lets him stay with her. And before she left, Nick gave her a gold chain. And as Diane remembers it, he asked her to stay, not to leave him. And he gave her the chain telling her to never take it off. And he said, you're Nick's woman now. And she was like, well, if that's not love, I don't know what is. The chain he never took off. And now I've got it around my neck. Like, she was like, God, there's so many promises and so many possibilities in that. And you know, now she's got this chain and it's bound them forever. So she wanted him to also get a rose tattoo that matched hers with her name underneath it. Well, he got the tattoo what? on his arm, but he didn't get her name. He was uh, like, I'm not going to put your name on it, but he got the rose tattoo. But in her mind, she's like, I mean, there's no, she's a nut job, but if I'm dating somebody and we get matching tattoos, I'm going to maybe think that, like, you're into it as well. Well, for sure. So There were tons of mixed signals on his end. Yeah. For sure. He's definitely not doing himself any favors. No. So she leaves for Oregon, and once she's gone, Nick is like, I had time to think. She wasn't there talking at me all the time, squawking in my ear. And he's like, my head finally cleared. And I realized I didn't want to be with her. So I called her and I said, it's that this is it. I'm not going to, I'm not moving to Oregon. I'm not coming up there with you. I don't want you coming back down here. Like that's it. I'm getting back together with Charlene and it's over. So he tells the cops that he, she had given him $500 before she left for bills in case he needed it so that he could move to Oregon faster. So basically, like, if he needed to pay stuff off, that way he could just get up there with her and the kids. So he gave her the gold chain as collateral. Okay. That's not how she remembers it. No. But that's what he said. And so he said um, that when he called her and broke it off, she said, well, if you if you really want to end it, if this is really, really over – I'll know it's over when I get my $500 back. And he was like, okay, fine. So he mailed her a check that day, April the 21st, and she cashed it. So she knew it was over. Then on April the 28th, she flew back down to Arizona and found Nick on his route. Cause she'd been calling there like to the post office. And he said that he told everybody just to be like, I'm not here. Um, so she was like, well, fuck it. I'll fly down there, which is, Shirley Turner to me. Oh, that's like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Flying cross country just to see you. So she stalks him on his route, finally finds him. And she's like, well, here's your necklace back. And he said that, you know, I mean, obviously she's going down there hoping that like, if he sees her, he'll be like, let's give another shot or let's bang or whatever. And it didn't happen. And he was like, look, it's really <laughs> over. And he said that, he regrets saying this to her that day. So this is April the 28th, less than a month before she shoots her kids. And he says, I just don't want to be a daddy. And that's like one of the last things they said to each other before the shooting. And then they asked him if he had heard from her after that. And he said that he didn't again, not until after the shooting. So she called him to tell him what had happened to her children. And she was expecting him to fly up there to comfort her. And, he didn't, but you know, in her mind, now that there were no children in the way, because he said he didn't want to be a daddy, now he doesn't have to be a daddy because their kids are probably all going to die. Yeah, there's then, no reason for them to not be together. Yeah, why don't you just fly up here? So 
that was, that was, you know, kind of where her head was at. And her diary, when they went through all of these entries, it showed a woman who was basically living in an alternate reality. She rarely mentioned her kids. She rearranged facts to make them fit her narrative. So after that visit to Arizona, she wrote, Oh, Nick, I'm happy again. You love me, and that's all I needed to know. I'm a little sad that Charlene has convinced you the kids will be too much of a burden. I know that's not true. They're terribly independent. So she's definitely making Charlene to be out like out to be the villain. And Nick loves her, but he's trapped by Charlene. And and the kids the kids aren't really that big of a deal. Yeah, they're getting ready for college because Danny's already what three? At this yeah, point? he's three, so he can yeah. he can wipe his own ass. Yeah, he's fine. Even. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um we've got a lot more to get to next week. Man, we'll cliffhanger. Through, uh, I know. We'll go through the rest of the investigation and the trial. And remember, if you are supporting us on Patreon, you will go ahead and get access to episode two immediately. You don't have to wait till next week for it to drop. And if you're not supporting us on Patreon yet, you can check it out. We release an additional full-length episode every month, and we have a weekly show called Murder Mixtape. So check it out. Bye. Bye. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Lilas! Lilas. <laughs>